right, all right. This week is a good episode. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Another Zoom one. Yep. Um, but it's awesome, you know, what it lacks in the in-person kind of like, uh, you know, vibe you get around the table. Um, it makes up for and just amazing wisdom and content. So very, very, very grateful for the platform of Zoom and how it allows us to connect with people in different places. Yeah. What did people do before? Yes, Skype? I guess. Phone, before phone that, calls? MSN chat? ICQ. ICQ? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listener, <laughs> did you have ICQ? Oh, How man. old are you? Yeah. <laughs> that was... ICQ is like the gateway drug to like messengers. Oh, yeah. Messaging. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. all downhill for, for me from there. It's true. I'd be like up late. I'd sneak down like after bed to go on ICQ. And right. My mom would hear that. Uh-oh. And yeah. Come, Zach, are you on the computer? It's yeah. 4 a.m. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing? Chatting. Talking to girls, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> oh, man. Let me be free. Yeah. Well, Ayla had ICQ, so she was the only girl I talked to on ICQ. Okay. There you go. It was yeah. meant to be. That was it. She was, there was no other girls. Only had a chat room for one girl. That's right. Ayla's <laughs> Dean's wife for, for those listening. He didn't know. Yeah. So, okay. ICQ, MSN Assad. <laughs> maybe it'll come back with uh, Twitter, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? That's Who knows? right. Yeah. Who yeah. knows? Elon Musk, Twitter. Maybe Just, maybe ICQ and MSN will be the new the new old thing yeah people are polarized man they're either like oh who cares or like people are abandoning you know getting off twitter i don't know i don't know what i think i still have twitter but i don't use it a ton i use i used to i'm a tweeter i don't actually tweet i just have like lists i've got like running (laughs) cycling i've got like hockey i've got like my vegan list so (laughs) i just like depending on my mood i'll just like hit a list on twitter and be like ah okay here we go if you want to learn about zach's twitter experience listen to our episode with kokomo founder katie riddell yeah i'm I'm still learning i'm still learning maybe i should just quit this is so good she's like i had to show zach how to use twitter because he just made lists (laughs) did i ever tell you about my book my list of favorites as i traveled yeah, I think so. Oh, my God. I think so, but I don't know if you've shared it. This is my favorite thing, obviously. I'll make a list of my favorite things for everybody. Mm-hmm. So when I when I was uh, a younger traveler, I, I learned this when I was first traveling in South America from another traveler, a guy named Mike Lindley. Shout out to Mike. He's got a hostel in Colombia now. Oh, cool. Um, he would take a little notebook and people that he connected with he would just like ask them to write down some of their favorite things like favorite movies favorite books favorite cities they've traveled to um really like open-ended list of favorites and i was like as someone that loves lists i'm like this is the greatest idea that i've ever heard so i adopted it and when i traveled south america when i traveled asia nepal and india i kept little books and when i would make connections with people i would ask them to write in my book and it was just like the greatest source of inspiration i could be like what's what's a, a book that i should read or what's a movie i should watch or yeah where where should i go travel next and i just open it up and i would like uh see all these incredible recommendations from people that i thought so so dearly of yeah. and it would rem- remind me of them and remind me of the experiences that we shared together and then it would inspire new experiences from from their favorites and it was uh one of my favorite things was collecting other people's favorites. Yeah. I think I made a Google Doc of it and like sent it to everybody that, uh, oh, that's or cool. it wouldn't have been a Google Doc. It just would have been an email. Yeah. A, a hotmail email. A hotmail <laughs> from like Zach B. Ball Berman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 1394 and hotmail. 
Oh man, that's so good. In some ways, it's like you created like the analog version of like a like a search engine. Like, yes. what do I want to you know like an inspiration search engine? Just, instead of googling like cool places to go, you just like open the book and away. You know, yeah, you got it right there. Mixtape culture in a list of places to travel and movies to watch. Yeah, oh, that's good. That's fun. Very cool. I wonder where that book is now. Yeah. <laughs> Try to find it. I know, yeah. Do you still have the email? I hope so. I'd have to search my old Hotmail account, Yeah, which I have done a few times because when we launched the juice truck, I just had my Hotmail, and oh, okay. I've had to like find some old, old things. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll go log into my Hotmail. That's so funny. Which is pretty funny. It goes back to high school. It's so funny when you like meet a functioning adult human today and then they give you like a hotmail. Yeah. It's always like, okay. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I mean, whatever. No shade, but maybe a little shade. Yeah. Hotmail? Really? That still exists? I know. What's the equivalent? Is AOL like equivalent to hotmail? Yeah. It's like, what if you're around the same time? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So MSN and chat and all those things aside. This week we had uh, the one, the only Hillary McBride. Yes, it was great. That was uh, that, that. That's what led us into that whole tirade. Like we got to zoom, yes. zoom chat with her. Um, but yeah, she she is awesome. Uh, someone that I've had the pleasure of knowing for a number of years, like just through some mutual friends, and we've you know run in I guess similar circles, you might say. But um, she's wonderful. Uh, a therapist. Uh, she's a researcher, speaker, writer. Uh, she's authored two two books now, two, three, two, three. I think three books. Three. Yeah. Yes, this is her third her third book, and um, just an all around like wonderful human being with great wisdom to share and support to offer. Her demeanor is so nice too. Like she's mm-hmm. just got this like beautiful way of being, how she articulates her thoughts. I just kind of like would hang to, hang on the words. It's kind of poetry in in motion but it's so approachable and um so many takeaways like i feel like she just like cuts to the truth in such a beautiful way Mm -hmm. um in Mm -hmm. such a a light loving way Mm -hmm. um yeah i really enjoyed it i I, it was a little shorter than most of our podcasts which some of you might enjoy yeah Uh, (laughs) but i hope it's the first of many conversations because i feel like there's there's so many things i'd love to share conversation with with hillary yeah yeah, and we did still manage to talk about running, so that's good. We talked about running. Uh, I, I wrote down here, I don't even know if this was on the pod. It might have been off, um, but movement is our original language. I think she she mentioned it while we were podcasting. Yeah, yeah. I love that. So good. And before we get into it, that makes me think we've got one big event coming up with our, our good friends at Planted. Yeah, Planted Expo is happening again uh, this this spring, early summer. Um and there's a really fun event that is speaking the language of movement, as our dear friend Hillary reminded us. Uh, it's the Scott Jurek Ultra Fun Run, Oof. June 3rd, this year, 2022. Sign me up. What are the details? Yeah. So if you don't know, Scott Jurek is uh, a legendary vegan ultra runner. In my mind, he's like one of the greatest runners of all time. Yeah. He's he, Yes. Like he's up there with like... People will probably get mad at me for saying this. Maybe they won't. I don't know. He's like up there with Elliot Kipchoge in my head for like the inspiration he's had on on myself totally. as a runner. Yeah, and I mean, different in the terms of like road runner versus like ultra kind of like you know mountain trail running. But yes, 
one of the greatest of all time, for sure. And he's coming to Vancouver as part of the Planted Expo, which is super exciting. And um, his generously uh, and I think enthusiastically uh, volunteered to to do this event um, as part of it. And yeah, it's going to be so good. So it's June 3rd um, on the Friday. It meets in the, we meet in the evening and we're going to take, uh, take a run around from Jack Pool Plaza down in uh, Olympic Village around Stanley Park. So it's not necessarily like an ultra run, but it will be ultra fun. Ultra fun. That's my kind of run. Yeah. It's gonna we're be, doing like what a eight k or ten k something like that. Yeah, it's a it's an eight k route, and uh, Van Renko is um, part of this event as well. The juice truck uh, will be there with uh, some juicy juices, and um, Scott is going to do a little bit of a Q and A Q&A at some point on the run, which is like, I mean, I think to run with Scott Jurek is yeah. just such an incredible opportunity. Yes, and spaces are limited. So you're going to want to make sure you get a ticket. You can get it if you uh, search on the Google machine, Show Pass Scott Jurek Vancouver. It'll take you right to the site there where you can just buy a ticket. Two options. One is just run and you get some juice truck at the end of the event. The other, uh, which is really quite good, it's $35. You get the run admission, a copy of Scott Jurek's new book, North, uh, with an opportunity to get it signed by him and a Brooks Tech shirt. And some juice trucks. So that's like, that's your option. Oof, Go for me it. Up. I'm going, I'm get a going shirt, primo. Get a book, yeah. get a juice, get a run with Scott Jurek. Yeah. Scott, if you are, are new to his uh, career, uh, he's got numerous books. Uh, he's in the, the infamous uh, Game Changers documentary as well yes. as one of the athletes um, that the documentary highlights of just doing incredible things on a plant-based diet. Yeah. And he's been living like the, the vegan lifestyle for, for a long time uh, before it was anywhere close to being a mainstream thing. Yeah. So, so there you go. Excited for that. Excited for the Planet Expo again. It's going to be fantastic. Coming up. We'll have more details on that uh, for sure. in weeks coming. But grab um, your tickets to that. Grab your tickets, Planted, Scott Jurek. And uh, with no further ado, Hillary McBride. Yeah. Let's be embodied. All right. Well, we are very excited to have our guest with us today, the wonderful Hillary McBride. Thank you for joining us. Author, counselor, mother, <laughs> one of these uh, many, many hats that you wear. Um, we've had the pleasure of, of kind of interacting and knowing each other for a few, a few years now, which is kind yeah, of- Yeah, it has been. Um, and so it's so rad to, to share this space with you and we're so grateful to have you mm. um, with us. And yeah, I think the last time mm. we saw each other was like in Vancouver when uh, at like mm. a, a art exhibit, the Scott, Scott, Scott Eric- Erickson's. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Scott's show. So, which was, was just a wild time. Yeah. And then I think previous to that, I was at one of your workshops that you offer. It was oh. the um, trauma informed. Right. Uh, like practices and it was so so good so good oh. stuff. you are like a service to many through whether oh. your work one-on-one that you do with people the care that you provide um or through like your latest effort um your latest book which will definitely dive into the wisdom of your body so thank you for the work that you do in the world and thank you for carving out some time to be here with us today it is such a privilege. I feel so delighted that you would invite me to have a conversation with you. It's the pleasure is mine. 
the the fan love was big too like we shared this on our instagram oh. today and there's like so many messages like really oh so excited to listen to the episode like gonna bookmark that one or whatever oh. to use for saving podcasts. that's right yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh that that's so touching to me i'm so delighted to know that thank you to all of you who are listening and excited about this feels yeah. so good to me well i thought we could get started. There's so much that we want to talk about, and hopefully this will be the first of, of many podcast conversations we share together. Uh, but I thought we could get things started with some language just to kind of set the course for the conversation mm-hmm. we're going to have today. So um, I was wondering if you could define embodiment and disembodiment, and if you could explain an experience from an embodied ex- perspective and a disembodied experience perspective if you could take like one experience and like kind of share what that experience Mm -hmm. might be from like the two contrasting um kind of experiences Mm -hmm. absolutely it would be my pleasure and i love starting with defining the terms because it's really easy to to kind of get lost in what these word words mean because we use them so colloquially and habitually without really having an understanding of how specific uses of these words in particular can take us in different directions. So as the academic, uh, the, the academic in me is just delighted that you would choose to start around defining the terms. <laughs> so my definition of embodiment comes from a mix of two scholars, uh, Niva Peran and Maurice Merleau-Ponty. And these are scholars who have dedicated their life's work to embodiment. So I'm kind of hodgepodging, quilting together some some of the main ideas that come from them. So if you're interested in these ideas in this particular definition, those are the places that you would go to find out more. Embodiment, as I understand it, is the lived experience of being a body, engaging with the social world around us. So there's a few different elements to that. There is the the felt sense of our body as the place of our subjectivity. It's the place of our beingness, that I am not just a person who has a body, wherein the I or the self is fragmented out and seen as cognition or cerebrality or these kind of abstractions that leave us in almost a kind of astral projection, that they're somehow outside of the textual, the sensual, the the physical reality of our substance of self, of matter. So seeing embodiment as the place of our beingness, we understand that it shapes and is shaped by the world around us, that matter as we live it is constantly interacting with other matter to have relationship, to have tensions, to have um, shared experience, to be in a, in a sense, a kind of dialogue with itself, with each other. So for example, if I am in my body in a particular social space, based on what the rules of that social space are, it's probably going to make me feel more or less comfortable to be in my body. Like you can imagine that as a white woman who is younger, but uh, has academic credentials, that there are some spaces that if I walked in, maybe other, you know, other academics who have PhDs, I might be able to use that as a way to feel like, oh, no, 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 like I can be okay in my body here, but maybe I'm with people who are older than me, maybe older people, maybe who are much more seasoned in the profession. And I can see based on their age and their stature and their size and their power, oh, maybe they've got a little bit more social power. So I all of a sudden feel a little bit more dis-ease in my body, or maybe in spaces where, you know, I have, I am clearly an outsider in some way. 
I've had experiences like this where I've gone to other countries and it's been really obvious that I'm the one who doesn't know what it's like to engage with that kind of movement or that practice or eat that food. My body signals to me, oh, I'm, I'm on the outside here. And it creates this, an experience between me and these other people about how we, you know, how we navigate or it shapes the lived reality inside of me. So embodiment is both me and ours, if that makes sense. It's mine and it's ours. It's here and it's inside this container of my body boundary, but it's also dialectic. It's being shaped and is shaping the spaces that I go into. Disembodiment, by contrast, would be a kind of um, illusion that we live under because in a way, we're never really disembodied. We are never actually fully disconnected from ourselves. as much as we learn to prioritize and value this kind of fragmented self-structure where we think of ourselves mostly as a thinking self. We are always embodied, but to be disembodied perhaps is to privilege out the thinking self or to, we could even take it clinically and say, maybe to be dissociated from sensation, to be dissociated from the, uh, the interaction that's constantly happening, mind and body, maybe to the point that we experience numbness, maybe to the point that we, um, devalue or actually try to suppress actively bodily sensations and stimuli or environments that would elicit more bodily sensation because it would feel overwhelming or threatening for us. And then maybe even if we take it a little bit further, we could say that some of us have learned to hate our bodies. We have learned to, to see our body as a problem that needs to go away and maybe something that we want to subdue or constrict or corset would be another way of thinking about it. Okay. So that's embodiment, disembodiment, um, lived experience. I'll just think of some kind of like off the top of my head. I'm thinking about what it's like to be a kid and be in certain environments where I'm told or, uh, have been told don't, don't do this with your body in this way. So an experience of disembodiment, when it like rolls off my tongue around, that would be like, you know, church on Sunday, nice dress, there's a race happening in the alley behind the church. <laughs> like, don't, don't do that here in this way with your body. Be still, sit quietly, be a good girl, right? There's often gender narratives around disembodiment that take us out of ourselves because we're told here's the script of what it means to be a good body according to our culture and according to gender roles. And to disavow the script of being a good body um, has consequences. So we, we keep ourselves stuck within the gender binaries or the gender roles that we're often that are imposed on us as kids. So don't be, don't be a bad girl, be a good girl, be sit still, wear this nice dress, do this thing, blah, 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 fill in the blank. And the cost is suppress, disconnect, disavow, but, but get a crew social belonging in a way I'm being good in some way. So there's often a payoff to disembodiment, especially when it gets us connection with other people. Maybe a, a contrasting experience of embodiment would be, um, okay, just even this weekend, I was feeling some grief around my journey into motherhood and not in the way that I expected grief to look, but I was feeling this kind of ache of the vulnerability of having your heart cracked wide open to be a parent. And it felt like a foreign kind of sadness. And 
I could feel it bubbling up inside of my chest and in my belly and almost coming up the back of my neck. It was like, I was really aware that the pain had movement to it. It, it, it kind of was slithering through me, so to speak. And in a past season of my life, I would have done the, the thing that I kind of described, shove it down, be good girl. Don't be with it, disconnect from it. And what I did instead was I, I made space in my day to move. I made space in my day to cry. I made space in my day to name and sit with and sense that feeling as it was bubbling up and trying to move through me. So to me, the embodied kind of experience or the, or the example to give you there was that I was sensing and I was listening and I was paying attention and making room for the bodily knowings that were asking to be heard mm. without disconnecting them or seeing them as um, a problem to be managed. I was seeing them as something that would allow me to be in more connection with myself or more health and deserved some space. Mm. Thank you. There's so many directions that, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, know. I mean, it's about being human, right? So like we yes. can really take this into any sphere of sociopolitical, developmental, psychological, all of that. Yeah. I mean, I think there's like so much language that we've used kind of in our adolescence, like, uh, Dean and I were talking before, like, you know, it's common to say, oh, that gives me the no feeling or that gives me the yes feeling. Mm. And like, are trusting your gut or like tuning in or tuning out. Um, so I think like we have this um, intuitive sense to um, understand embodiment and to experience life as embodied people. Um, but I think, you know, through, um, through nurture and through our, our learned experiences, we can we can kind of forget um, how to live in our body or how to value our body in a way that's that's loving and and yeah. um, you know nurturing for ourselves. So, You're um, so right. thank you for kind of setting the table and um, defining those those two terms because I think that'll kind of be the the, mm -hmm. the roots that we're going to follow for the conversation today. Great. Well, I think it's fascinating too what you mentioned, and I'd never thought about it before this way, but like how you said there's a payoff often for being disembodied and how mm -hmm. like that, you, typically we would say, no, we want to be fully embodied and live into that experience, but how often I would assume at like young ages, even, you know, you, you had given the example of the girl like not racing in, in the Sunday best, you know, as a teacher, I think of like, sit still uh, to mm -hmm. the boy who's feeling restless or girl, but typically, especially in younger ages, we see like, oh, boys are full of energy and blah, blah, blah. And this idea to like, sit still and that those who can are, are rewarded or there's that. Uh -huh. And how that reinforces maybe someone feeling bad feelings about their body. Like, well, it's really hard for me to sit still mm -hmm. or like, I can't function when I'm in a seat. I need to be standing but like maybe not knowing how to advocate or speak up for yourself to say this is like the sit still doesn't work for me or like yes. I'm a girl and I need to go run. Right. right. I but I think that's for people maybe really helpful in our own journeys of unpacking, like where we're at is saying, no, I was like rewarded uh -huh. to be disembodied. Right. Which we, we need to acknowledge as part of the social fabric that we're in because typically the people who there's kind of like a, 
a valence to disembodiment. On the positive spectrum, people who are and have been the most disembodied have often been accrued the most social power. When we look at sociopolitical hierarchies of which bodies are usually privileged the most, those are people who have been seen by our social construction as being less uh, controlled or subject to the the lusts or throws or instincts of the body. In fact, you could argue that that's actually one of the origins of the creation of white supremacy is that people were seen as um, being more connected to their bodily kind of bodily knowings, indigenous ways of knowings, practices around honoring the body. And that was seen as being devalued by people who had constructed a culture that was considered to be more Uh, proper bodily in a way. And so it's important that we acknowledge to disembody yourself often works in your favor when you are trying to get social power or keep yourself safe with people who have the most social power. So there is like, there's a way of approximating bodily routines and rhythms of those with the most power that keeps people safe that also then disconnects them from themselves. And then we could swing to the other side of it and say, uh, there are times when we, those people with the least social power have had to kind of have been disembodied as a result of the way that society has enacted harm on them. And it's, um, it's to their own deficit as well. Like to be connected to your body after you've lived through traumas, traumas that have been acted on your body um, it's a really painful, scary, dangerous thing. And so to disconnect and to be disembodied kind of affects people on either spectrum, either end of the spectrum of social power, right? When social power is utilized against someone in the form of violence or aggression or um, policy that makes their body disappear or makes their body unsafe in some way, this costs them greatly. Well, one thing I heard you touch on, on on previous interviews was embodiment as a rebellion and as a rebellion specifically to colonialism. And mm-hmm. um, I just loved that that thought. Um, and uh, maybe you could, I mean, you've, you're already kind of unpacking that, but maybe you could un- unpack how embodiment is a rebellion to colonialism to mm-hmm. paint a clear picture. Well, it's really important to recognize that the the paradigm that upon which disembodiment rests is a Hellenistic philosophy that originated in kind of Western Europe and with Plato in particular, who really started to create the schism that we carry around inside of us by originating, or I mean, maybe he was just kind of consolidating thought at that time and it wasn't really his original idea, but we trace it back to him in his writings that the mind and the body are separate. And somehow the mind is closer to the spirit and the mind can keep us good. And the body is subject to kind of the rules of the flesh. It's unruly in a way. It has its own compass. It has its own longing of desires and needs and therefore kind of is dangerous in a way. It's dangerous to the kind of the, the structure of our society. And it also creates risk. Right? The body brings us in proximity to death and pain and suffering and loneliness and objectification and incarceration. The body is, oof, there's a lot of scary stuff that happen that happens when we are bodies. So Plato says, 
maybe we're actually more mind than we are body. And that mind gets us closer to what is ultimately pure and good. And it's really important for us to recognize that even though that trickled down, down through Plato and Descartes and in so many other philosophical and faith traditions and how normal it feels for us today, that that's actually not the prevailing worldview of many other cultures and communities that to see the mind as superior, to think that because we think, therefore we are, like that's actually not how most first peoples saw the self. That's not how most first peoples saw what it meant to be a human and in relationship to the natural world around us. So it's really important to recognize that what feels normal for us, the kind of this disembodied reality is the byproduct of this philosophical tradition that was also then used to subjugate people who thought differently. And so for those of us to be more in alignment with these particular values makes sense given our traditions, our cultural traditions that we've inherited, but also um, is, is been implicated in harm. Mm. And to be doing something different to go, okay, I, I want to remember that there is more to myself than just my thoughts starts to weave together many of the other fragmentations that we see, because it's not, it's not a far leap to say, I am in relationship with my body and my body needs to be listened to. Oh, my body doesn't feel good in the rhythms that society is asking me to be in. Oh, my body is actually telling me something about how I interact with the natural world. Oh, I need things from the natural world to be healthy and to be thriving. And oh my goodness, now that I'm paying attention, I can feel my feelings. And my feelings tell me that some of the ways that we're living in our society aren't sustainable for us and they hurt other people and they hurt me. And so I think that embodiment is a kind of, it's a remembering, maybe an an original remembering of our interconnectedness. It's like the fragment within us represents the fragments that have been created between us. And when we drop into connection with ourselves, it's really easy to see that it would make sense to drop into connection with all other things. Like if fragmentation is fragmentation is fragmentation, then to see that you and I are separate um, would very naturally lend itself to why I would see myself as separate from myself too, that there would be kind of mind body division and self other division. Mm. Yeah. Which is like that very um, first peoples or like indigenous wisdom is like that we're all intricately connected and like really right. bound to one another and to nature and that yeah that more like platonic and for sure like descartes coined it with i think therefore i am uh, separation and, and the irony to me is like that is truly like a universal statement even though it is potentially problematic with like separating mind and body but he didn't mean it universally it was right very much like an upper echelon, like the way I think is correct, and therefore I am. And anyone who is different than me or thinks uh-huh. is a non-person. Right. And so, but it is far more that, that desire to, to see and recognize our connection within ourselves mm-hmm. and everyone else. And this has been used to create the foundations of patriarchy too. And we think about what it means to be a woman in relation to the cycle of my body, this has often been a way that women have been pathologized in history, that to be um, subject in a way to the cycles of the body has been used as a way to prove that women are somehow lesser than, that there are these 
connections to the body that mirror connections to the cycles of the earth that can't be controlled. And for these cycles and rhythms to not be controlled has been a way that um, can have been the reasoning or the rationale for devaluation, as opposed to seeing that all of us are in relation to cycles and rhythms. And, and that if we're not aware of it, we're probably just not paying attention. Yeah, it's funny how, you know, I mean, it's not funny, but the, how the woman, the woman's body has a natural cycle and the earth has a natural cycle and nature has a natural cycle, but the colonial patriarchal system tries to break that cycle right. where everything else is in constant flow of that cycle. Uh -huh. except kind of this capitalistic colonial system that we've, we've built to kind right. of disembody that, um, that natural cycle. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that I wanted to to bring up and just kind of get your opinion on uh, one one part of your book that I really liked was um, this idea of living on the lawn versus living in your house. Mm. That was one of my favorite um, parts that you shared, and I found it really powerful. And um, reading it, I you know it makes you aware of how many of us live on the lawn. And when you put it that way, it's you know it's so crazy that we'd want to be living outside of our house. Um, can you kind of unpack that, that for us a sure. little bit? It's a metaphor to represent how we participate in self-objectification. So the idea is that if you have a home, it probably makes most sense that you spend most time inside the home when you're on your property, kind of in proximity to your home, that you would be taking shelter in it, that you would live your life inside as opposed to kind of this other seemingly bizarre scenario where a person would be living, maybe pitching a tent on the front lawn and not going in and not inhabiting the home, just maybe enjoying the outside of it, appreciating what it looks like and assuming that that was kind of this, the, the sum of its purpose for it to be looked at and enjoyed from the outside. So to, to think about embodiment, in parallel to this, it might be a way of saying like many of us have lived on the lawn for a long time and it's time for us to take up residence inside of our own homes, to put dishes in the, you know, in the cabinets, to cook meals, to fill the house with music and laughter and to pay attention to the temperature that feels good in the home, to sit around the fire and have conversation with whatever is inside as a way of really creating a life that feels um, habitable a bodily experience that feels habitable. And it is really countercultural to do that because so many of us have been invited to see our bodies as a thing that we look at from the outside to the point that often when I have conversations with people about your body and I say, your body's good, your body's good, whatever the thing is that I say, people are like, I'm trying not to think that. And we drill all the way down to the definitions and realize, oh, when I'm talking about body, you think I mean appearance you think I mean how you look and you've been working so hard to disconnect from how you look. And here I am talking about bodies. And that's really confusing because we've bought into the cultural story that that's the, that's the kind of, that's it when it comes to body, we're just how the body looks as opposed to being in our bodies and seeing our bodies as the place of pleasure, the place of vitality, the place of emotion, the place of connection and sensation and intuitive knowing. Our body is so much more than how we look. And of course, it is so okay for us to be aware of how we look and take pride in that. Who wouldn't want to, on a nice summer day, sit on their lawn and 
take joy in the beautiful flowers that are growing out front and, you know, enjoy like hanging a wreath on the front door because it's Christmas time. And like, of course we can enjoy what it's like to have a home and keep a home. But if we're living entirely on the front lawn, we're missing that the home is meant to be lived in. I love that. I feel yeah. like that represents so much in, in lands and such like a, a clear, um, coherent way. Dean, I see mm -hmm. you nodding over there. Um, maybe kind of let us know where, where, where you're at with this, Dina. Yeah, no, I think it, it resonates so deeply and just like that important distinction between like being embodied and talking about the body and it not meaning the way that your body looks. And I know that for me, like when I think about it, like uh, from an athletic kind of standpoint, like it's the easiest way for me to feel embodied is like performance, like uh -huh. how running, how is my fitness? And then the trap that I found myself in is like, I measure those things not by like what my body is able to do, yeah. but like how my body looks. Right. And like, I mean, Zach and I talk a lot about this on our runs or whatever, and, and just having the experience of, you know, catching yourself in the mirror and feeling like, well, there's like, there's more of me there than there should be and feeling down, mm -hmm. feeling bad about yourself on the way out of the house to go for a run where you, you know, put up a really good time or run or your body just takes you and carries you through. And the whole time you're feeling bad about yourself and not catching like, wow, it's a, it's an amazing right. piece of equipment. Right. This That's morning. right and not and, and try and putting too much value on appearance rather than the uh -huh. like my body just took me for a 10 kilometer yes. feel amazing yes that's right oh i'm so glad you brought this up because i think one of the things that i didn't include in the book that i wanted to is the way that we can also misconstrue our body as function too Okay. So we're on the front lawn. It's really easy to get the metaphor of like, Oh, okay. The paint's chipping. Oh, I don't know. You know, there's kind of like that piece of wood isn't where it should be. The roof needs to be fixed up. Like, okay, the, there's some aesthetic things, but what about the, the rest of us who are living on the lawn because we're so preoccupied with measuring, like, is the, you know, is the body going to, or is the body, is the home going to hold tight when the rains come this winter? You know, I got to fix this and I got to fix that. And here's the metric for a good house. It's a house that is, you know, like this size and functions this way and keeps this temperature and, you know, performs and here are all of the versions of how I evaluate that the, that the home itself is efficient and productive and valuable. Yeah. So we see what maybe some of us can shift out of form, but we shift into function and we see the, the house or the body as as a thing that is just meant to do stuff for us. And I want to take it even further and say, okay, that like, what a reprieve from kind of image saturated culture to, to realize that like our body is constantly doing things, but what would it be like if we felt into the experience even more? Like I want to take it even further phenomenologically to not just use um, like productivity and function as proof of the body goodness, but what would it be like if when we're running, we felt into the sensation and the tingling of aliveness in our body? Like, oh my goodness, what would it be like to go, this is, here I am, I'm alive. Movement is like, movement is our original language. It is the, the very first thing and kind of product or result of our selfness emerging right from in the womb. Movement is the thing that we assess as 
health and personhood and like a measure of beingness. And, and it's a way that we relate and interact. Like, what would it be like if, if instead of just form or function, it was beingness, it was selfness, it was vital, it was alive, it was sensation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so good. And yeah. I, yeah. And I mean, I know you've, you've led some like uh, run, run retreats or partner. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that that's part of it. And I just, oh, yeah. I'm just going to put it out there in, in the universe of like in a little more good Hillary McBride, like running clinic or retreat. Like we, I should, mean, um, let's do it. I'm ready. I just wrote down the embodied runner. Hillary has to come to our run retreat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you know what? This is so funny because I, I identify as a runner, but I often get myself tripped up in conversations with runners because they're like, well, you know, like how, what's your route or how far do you run or how long have you been running? I'm like, I don't, what? I don't wear a watch. I don't know where I'm going. I don't, I'll, sometimes I run for three minutes and then the rest of it is like, I'm just enraptured with a cherry tree that I found that I haven't seen before. And I feel all of a sudden like I'm in this mystical experience and the run was three minutes, but I was gone for two hours and I would still call myself a runner. And that kind of like defies some of the, like use, like treat your body like an instrument and accomplish these things. But perhaps, I don't know what, what you would say about that in terms of how it fits into your experiences of running. But that for me, that's really important. The experience of being alive, not just the, the metric. Yeah. I think we're probably both uh, enamored with the metrics like too much. (laughs) And we, it's funny because we've talked about even other guests we've spoken with uh, have said that are, that are runners as well um, in, in whatever form that takes and looks like for them have said like the, the most important thing is like doing it for the sake of doing it. Mm. And oftentimes like we've been out and, you know, we'll do the extra loop to make sure we get like a round number. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's good on Strava. To, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's so driven by the experience of the run, uh, uh. driven by like the result or the metric or saying like, it's functional. Like I need to have this movement to feel good, yeah. whatever, to be good, to feel value. Mm-hmm we probably need more of that practice of like, oh, it was a three minute run today, but like, right. like what we did, you know? Well, I'll give you a little hack if I can, in terms of like bridging the gap between those, because often when we're really driven by the kind of the measurements and the external evaluations that help us kind of assess, like, was this good? Was this not good? Am I essentially what we're also asking was, was am I good? Am I not good enough? Or whatever the questions are that lead us back to our, our worth, there's a certain kind of hit that happens when we get the round number or when we feel, you know, we did the thing that we, we decided is how we evaluate if our movement was good or not. And that's kind of implicated in the dopamine system. So usually there's some physiological arousal that happens. There's maybe even some relief of like, Oh, that feels so good. Yeah. That number looks so good. And that is an embodied experience too. The sensation of going, Oh, I feel relief or I feel proud or I feel excited comes with its own, its own invitation into embodiment. So even if we're using our body to get something else, like the feeling at the end that feels really good when we see the round number, let's enjoy that feeling. Because if we're not enjoying that feeling and that's the whole reason we're doing it, what is the actual point of doing it? Right. (laughs) So like being in just for a moment longer, like stretching out that space of I'm so proud of myself. Mm-hmm. 
Ooh, this feels so good. Ooh, yeah. Like the way that it burns after, or the sense of like, I can feel my muscles like warm and pumping blood. And I feel so jacked up right now. Just enjoy that for a moment. Like that would be that in itself is an invitation into embodiment. Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's really good. Mm-hmm. To keep an eye out, right? For in, in all areas of life, whether I was just, even as you were thinking about that, because the next most important thing after running is like eating, but just that uh-huh. it, like, and, and we don't need to get into this because we probably won't have time, but like food and how that can play into like an embodied experience and be something that for one person is a source of pure joy and another person, it's, it's a very difficult relationship. But mm-hmm. like, just knowing that savoring a delicious meal, whether it's like a smoothie or salad or your favorite dinner or whatever it is, and really just like slowing down to like taste how good it is and allow like the joy that can come from that to be part of that experience. Like just, just those words, invitation to embodiment. I'm like, oh, right away thinking of all of the space is where it's right in front of us and we might miss it. Yes. Just got to eat this lunch as quick as I can and on to the next thing. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that's uh-huh. you're so right. Like even in this moment, I just noticed I was feeling joy talking about this. And I just wanted to give myself a moment to encounter that, to notice that has a particular physiological signature to it. It has, it has a sweetness to it. And it would be really easy for me to get so caught in like, Oh, what do I want to say next? Or what's happening here in the conversation and miss that even right here in this seemingly disembodied abstraction of like, you know, podcast recording, our bodies are saying, pay attention. Like it feels good to be alive. It feels good to be here. I love that. I love all the running stuff. We always try to tie running into every podcast oh, do you? some way or another. Okay. So, so you got your scratch on the bingo card now. Yeah, this is like, we hit like, it. Like, um, we had a couple user questions yeah. um, from, from your fans. Oh um, my gosh. I thought I could ask one of them and then we could do a, a few rapid fires before uh, we send each other okay, off. Okay, okay. Um, so one was um, about motherhood. So hmm. um, fan, your fan wanted to know, how has embodiment and your own body wisdom changed since becoming a mother? Oh my goodness. Um, it feels like it has dropped me into an awareness of what has innately been there all along, but was easy to distract myself from. There's something about like an, an experience that comes to mind is of my, you know, my daughter crying in the next room. Cause she's just woken up from a nap or something like that. And my whole body getting hot, just like, like, it's like, I'm getting an electric charge which to me feels like this innate wisdom that says, go to her. Like, here's the energy to go to her. It's the middle of the night or whatever it is like here, get up, get up. It's uncomfortable to be disconnected from her. Mm. And I think it, it, what it's done is it's shown me on this really primitive level, something that is true about all of us as, as people, like, it feels like it's really easy for me to extrapolate in a way that I never was able to before how, we are wired to be in belonging and connection to each other and attuned to each other's needs. And it feels like um, my heart has broken open to experience and feel other people's pain and joy because I see them as grown up versions of my daughter. It's like I can see every single person as having been a baby. Mm. And because I know how I feel about my baby, 
all of a sudden this kind of illusion that we're so separate from each other starts to fall away. And that all comes back to this bodily knowing of my, my body wanting to be close to her and wanting to help her feel safe in the world. So it, it, for me has been like a very both embodied and mystical experience in the sense that I feel the fabric of our humanity is closer to me and to each other than I ever did before. Mm. Does, does it kind of create a sense of like an embodied community or collective when you've shared that experience with somebody that is, is of you in many ways? I don't understand the question. Can you try um, again? I really want to, I want to get it. Like just this idea of embodied self, like uh-huh. sharing that with a daughter and, yeah. and seeing that in other people. Does that yeah. kind of create a sense of like an embodied community? Yes. In some way? Yeah, it does. Like it just, it's really easy for me to take these kind of cognitive leaps in a way to see, to see, but to feel also, um, that everyone has come from someone as, as I've come as, you know, I've come from someone and someone's come from me. We're all from somebody. We're all from someone's and, and it just feels, yeah, it feels very community or, or humanity as a fabric Mm -hmm. of interdependence feels very accessible to me now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you take it back to that, it's like we're all from from adulthood. We can say, "Oh, yeah, we're logically like we're all the same. Like we're all very." But when you take it back to like, no, we all like there's one way in. Yeah, like we all came from our mothers, and that is is it's like birth and death are the great equalizers because we can't escape those realities. And so when it talks about creating that community, that sense of connection and belonging, it's like it's baked into the whole mm-hmm. from the get Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh, exactly. Yeah. And it's just humbling to have that, feel that knowing in a new way, because these are all things that I've said before, I've known before, I've thought before, but I feel them in a way that feels so vulnerable. It's like when someone tells me a story about their child, good or bad, painful or beautiful. I just feel like tears in my throat because it, it's all of a sudden it, it's not abstract anymore. It's like, Oh, I know this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So good. Um, maybe, maybe one more, uh, in the pseudo random rapid fire round that we have. Okay. But, uh, I, had the pleasure of being um, learning from you in that kind of like trauma informed workshop as it relates to like leading people. And this was like in a in kind of like a ministry context, but it could be in any context, but you spoke something mm-hmm. about something and it has stayed with me. And I think <gasps> so profound and oh. I've said it before uh, with lots of people actually always giving you the credit. Um, but if you could touch on the idea and you've talked about like trauma and experiencing trauma in the body, but this idea of body memory and how in different parts oh. of the and store experiences. Can you touch on that? I know just tell Sure. Yeah, there's like so there's so much out there and I won't do justice to it in just a second, but maybe one way of introducing this concept is that there are a ton of different kinds of memories. There is explicit and declarative memory. If I was like, "Hey Dean, can you go to the grocery store real fast? I need tomatoes, I need cucumbers, I need pickles, I need whatever." Right? You'd have this list of things that you could memorize and then repeat and it would stay in the cognitive realm. And then we have memory that's kind of like emotional and it's connected, it kind of sits in this intermediary place where, you know, maybe we 
we think of something, oof, and it comes with a little bit of feeling. We remember that, you know, that song that we fell in love to, or the, you know, the first dance or the something that kind of evokes something in our body. And then we have memory that's totally disconnected from cognition, which tends to be procedural memory or somatic memory. And it's like our nervous system is collecting data constantly about how to keep us safe. And it's how to keep, you know, how to keep us alive and connected to people and, you know, in, in relationship, but also, you know, protecting us from the things that have hurt us before happening again, or maybe the things that we've done along, you know, frequently or done a lot, maybe we don't need to give as much cognitive attention to because our brain and nervous system tends to be a, uh, an, a resource management super machine. And so our brain doesn't want to be thinking about things that it doesn't need to be thinking about anymore. So an example of that would be riding a bike. A really good example is like, you can get on a bike if you know how to ride it and you probably don't even know what you're doing. You have to be like, okay, well, I'm kind of balancing. And then I push my right foot down, but at the same time, my left foot comes up. Like you kind of have to think about it, but you could just do it. Your body knows how to do it. That is a positive version of implicit or somatic memory, but there's also, there's lots of kinds of that memory that are connected to pain and trauma. So, you know, someone comes towards us and the conditions you know, maybe it's dark, maybe we're in an alley and our heart rate speeds up and our, our body says, get out of here and takes us to the, you know, the, the most well-lit area. Maybe we don't know why our heart rate was speeding up and maybe we don't know why we felt so afraid, but maybe our body is remembering something, you know, that was in the past that kept us feeling unsafe. And so our body is saying, Hey, this is kind of like that thing that happened before. Like, even if you get on a different bike, even if it's not your bike, you still know how to ride it. So our bot, our brain body system is constantly making connections and generalizing between things that we learned before and things that we kind of how we want to apply them now. So the idea of this and kind of what it all boils down to is that often we have reactions to things because we are remembering implicit memory in a non-cognitive way. And our body is saying, Hey, this feels like something that happened before, like good or scary. And you know, here's some energy to do something about it. And that might impact why we feel safe with people that we never met because some, on some level, our body reminds us like, oh, this person smells like your mom, or this person reminds you of that person you felt really close to at one point, but it can go the other way too. Sometimes we feel afraid, even if we're not in the presence of danger, because our body is saying it reminds us of something that scared us before. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm just like, like, okay, pivot. <laughs> okay. I'm taking notes, but I'm just trying to be conscious of time because yeah. I know we got to wrap things up. Thank you. Um, you know, I'd love to talk to you forever, Hillary, and I hope we can have future conversations with sure. you. Um, Dinner, maybe uh, you can um, bring in our, our closing question uh, before we wrap things up here. Closer. Well, yeah, thank you so much, Hillary, for being with us. and sharing all that you've shared. Uh, like I said at the outset, you're just a wealth of information and someone who puts lots, whether it's through podcasts, through your writing, teaching, speaking, um, mm -hmm. just to help people. And so it is a is an mm -hmm. honorable profession and all of the hats that you wear are just, um, we need more, we need more Hillary McBride in the world, that's for sure. But we um, we ask all of our guests in creating this podcast and naming it a little more good, that was our intention, was to spread goodness and create ways for people to connect and feel, um, feel good and do good. But for you, we'd love to know, what does that little phrase mean for you? Uh, 
a little more, a little more good. Mm. To me, it reminds me of what, what we already talked about in our conversation. Like when, when we're staying, when something feels good, like staying with it just a little bit longer and actually enjoying it, like just take what's good and make it like a little bit more good in a way by actually enjoying it and being with it. And it's amazing how hard that is for so many of us to do, like to stay with good feelings, to enjoy something instead of rushing off to like, okay, what's the next thing or the next task or the next thing I have to accomplish in order to try to catch this good feeling again, like actually just being with the good feeling and letting it feel good just a little bit longer. I love that. That took me back to the cherry tree on your run. There it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Hillary. We're so grateful for for the space that you hold and and the community that you create and 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 kind of giving us all permission to to love ourselves. I think there's a domino effect mm-hmm. of you know a world that can love itself. So thank, thank you for you what so you do, much. and I hope to see you in in the real life sooner yes, than later. That's right. What a joy to be with you both today. Thank you for the space you created and your thoughtful questions. And maybe there'll be a run at some point, or maybe a run retreat or a more run conversations we should definitely definitely keep those options on the table i'd love to do it <laughs> okay you two take care thanks bye bye all right the wisdom of your body yes embodied community embodied collective embodied universe killer mcbride that was awesome so good yeah um if you <laughs> I don't know how you couldn't if you love that episode um make sure you check out hillary she's on instagram hillary mcbride as well as her website which will point you in all of the directions from social to like her books services media all the stuff hillarymcbride.com is going to be your kind of go-to place and her book the wisdom of the body finding healing wholeness and connection through embodied living is available now everywhere you get books especially local bookstores and it's such a beautiful book like it's like I, I feel like it's one of those essential books that everybody should read it's like when i picked up like the four agreements or the power of now mm-hmm. or any of those i'm like everybody should read this book and i had the same feeling with hilly mcbride's book yeah. it's a book everybody would be better off by reading yeah better versions of themselves you know better versions in, in their communities right yeah just just addressing the things within us that that can help either set us free to the next level or those those things that are perhaps like barriers that we can we can gently address within ourselves and yeah she's uh she's a wonderful person to help be kind of like a a long side guide for yes. those things yeah yes. yeah there's something cheesy that i just thought of it's from peloton but whenever they say it, it makes me smile and they always, one of their taglines is self-love is never selfish. Ooh, that's good. I love it. Yeah. I love it. That is good. All right. So, yeah, I hope you all enjoyed that episode. Uh, I encourage you all to continue your, your Hillary McBride journey. Yeah. Pick up her book. Uh, she's on a lot of podcasts. She has her own podcast. Um, you know, keep, keep learning. Uh, keep diving deep into the wisdom of your own body. And uh, we'll see you all. Same place, same time next week. You got it. Peace.